I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie, should we go for a walk? <laughs> Good skidding there, Rose. On the wooden floor, mate. Come on. <sighs> How are you doing, listeners? Adam Buxton here. Welcome to this snap election special. First of all, should we even be having this election? I mean, yes, Snap were a fantastic band, and I loved the power. But let's take a look at their manifesto. Like the crack of the whip, I snap attack front to back in this thing called rap. Dinging like a cymbal, rhyme devil on the heavenly level. Bang the bass, turn up the treble. Radical mind, day and night all the time. Seven, fourteen, wise, divine. Maniac, brainiac, winning the game. I'm the lyrical Jesse James. But can we trust Snap? Will they really bang the bass? Who will they bang the bass for? Will it just be a privileged minority? Or will everyone get an opportunity to bang the bass? And of course, we've heard many promises from Snap about turning up the treble in the past. But can we... Ah, oh, I'm going to stop now. Because they're called Snap. And it's a Snap election. There's probably a huge number of people making that same lame joke isn't there? But I don't spend enough time on social media to know that. I'm just in my Michael Bublé out in East Anglia. Oh dear, oh dear. How are you doing, listeners? Let me tell you a bit about episode 40 of the podcast, which features a conversation with the writer Zadie Smith. She was christened Sadie. True fact. And she was born in 1975 to a Jamaican mother and an English father and she grew up in northwest London. Zadie has a half-sister, a half-brother, and two younger whole brothers who are rapping men. One goes by the name of Luke Skies, and the other is Doc Brown, who is also an actor and comedian, of course. I talked to Doc Brown on this very podcast last year. Zadie made her first splash in the publishing world with her debut novel, White Teeth, Back in Y2K. Oh, you remember Y2K? The computers couldn't count up to 2000, so they all exploded and uh, society collapsed. It was a dark time. And Zadie went on to write The Autograph in 2002, On Beauty, 2005, NW, 2012, and Swing Time, published last year, 2016. I enjoyed swing time. This is the synopsis from the Penguin website. Two brown girls dream of being dancers, but only one, Tracy, has talent. The other has ideas about rhythm and time, about black bodies and black music, what constitutes a tribe or makes a person truly free. It's a close but complicated childhood friendship that ends abruptly in their early 20s, never to be revisited, but never quite forgotten either. 
Uh, Zadie currently lives in New York and is a tenured professor of fiction at NYU, where she has taught since 2010. Our conversation was recorded in late November of last year, 2016, while Zadie was visiting London to promote Swing Time. And I think that she was pleased to have the opportunity to talk to a, a, a brilliant short man about things other than her books and her career. We spoke just a couple of weeks after Donald Trump had been elected president. So there's some uh, fun nostalgia to be had, casting your mind back to those wacky, uncertain times before everything calmed down and got completely sorted out the way it is now. Ah, That's a bit of irony there. We also talked about music, focusing on Zadie's affection for John Lennon. Uh, We talked about rapping a little bit. And at the end, being 90s guys, I forced the subject of Oasis on Zadie and she uh, rolled with it. (laughs) Hey! There are also recollections of the late David Foster Wallace, the writer. Uh, Thoughts on the often fraught relationship between mothers and daughters. And other deliciously toasty waffle. Technical note about this week's podcast. When I spoke to Zadie, my mic pack failed to record. So, sorry about the uh, roomy quality of my contributions to this conversation, but I had to make do with what was captured on Zadie's mic, which I'm glad to say worked fine. So, without further ado, here we go. christened Sadie. I was. But you stuck a Z in there. I like anyone I who did. sticks a Z in there. I said to my mum recently, don't you think it's weird that all your children have aliases? Like yeah. as if they were superheroes. Yeah, or that's true. Why it's really weird. Luke is Luke Skies, Ben is Doc Brown, and I'm Zadie. Um, I, don't, I don't know why that's come to be. I mean, they were rappers. There was a formal reason for why they did that. Yeah. Rappers have to have another name. They can't really be called Ben Smith. I mean, they could be, but... Future weird. rappers might be. Future rappers, it might finally happen. Yeah. And for me, I just, I've had this kind of preoccupation with a boy whose name began with Z, and I, I don't know what I was thinking. You know when you're young, you have some strange ideas about sure, yeah. how to get together with people. It didn't, obviously didn't work. Zay-Zay. I always <laughs> thought of um, Bowie as Zavid. Z- <laughs> because Zavid had a sort of... Uh, yeah, he spoke that way. Him. You know, he's likely he's spoke like that anyway, as yeah. if there was Zeds flying around. I love it as a letter. I mean, it does mean yeah. grandpa in Yiddish, which I wasn't aware of at the time oh, that really? I did it. Yeah. In New York, that's really what it means more than anything. So yeah. that was one of the first questions I ever had when I read in New York in Barnes and Nobles, like age 23. I read from White Teeth, I was feeling quite pleased with myself. And the first question was, why are you called grandpa? <laughs> <laughs> Am I? 
How long have you been in New York? Uh, ten years. And why did you go originally? Well, at first I went to America for a kind of fellowship at Harvard. That's how it started. Uh, fellowship of the Rings, this is. It was Fellowship of the Rings. Yeah. I, I got the tattoo and I got the ring. And then I went to Columbia in New York and then NYU. Yeah, it was jobs mainly and I just got yeah. stuck. Have you always lived in the same part of town there or do you move around? No, I was in Chelsea for a bit and now, ever since I've been with NYU, I've been in the village. They have these towers that all the faculty and some of the grad students live in. And it's a fun place though, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Like, I've always lived um, in England. I'm from Willesden, which is, what do you call that, like an urban suburb. Yeah. The main rule is it takes 45 minutes to get anywhere you want to go right. and sometimes an hour and a half. So the, the novelty was like living in town. Like, I live in Greenwich Village, so I can just walk to a cinema or a bar. Or, so that was fun. But then I had kids and that all became a moot issue. Yeah. The cinema is only 100 yards away, but I still don't ever go there. you've got children, exactly, you may as well live in a box. <laughs> a box in, in a field. In the Hebrides. Because <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference at all. But do you think you might have come to the end of your New York tether? Well, one of our most famous and comic and orange New Yorkers has now gone into a position of some power. So that makes you think again. I still love New York. Does it really it. make you think again, in practical terms? In practical terms, because he won't bloody leave for Washington. He's blocked all the traffic. This is, I know this is a very minor issue in the apocalypse, but you can't get anywhere. Yeah. Everything is now two hours slower because the, the army, or whatever it is, is outside his house, along with all the protesters and half my students. And That'll calm down, though, won't it? I, well, I hope so, but he's saying he doesn't want to... He doesn't, he doesn't seem to understand the whole arrangement, like... You have to go to the big house and be the president all the times. How sanguine are you about the whole situation? I felt a little better, actually, for comedy reasons in the past few days watching him tweet so madly about things like Saturday Night Live and Hamilton. I, th I don't know why that makes me feel positive, but I think he might be a president very easy to wind up yeah. and therefore to impeach. <laughs> right. Don't you think that... One likely scenario is that four years will go by, everyone will go, OK, well, we gave that a chance. Yes. And now let's get back to the original project. I think it's, I, it's more and more likely, like on the way here, I was reading this transcript of him talking to all the journalists, TV journalists and journalists in New York, and he's just so incredibly thin-skinned. And also he's the kind of guy who starts the meeting like, I'm really happy to see it's all going really well. And then within the, by the end of the sentence... He's like ranting like Mini Adolf. And, and one of the themes from the transcript is that he feels really sad when people boo him. He, had, he didn't realise that now it would be a case of, you know, both sides having their say in his face. He's a bit sad, I think. Mm. You don't want a sad guy with nuclear weapons. A sad man with nuclear weapons and... Um, <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, it's all, it's really problematic. But um, I, I feel a bit, bit more cheery than I did, you know, on November 8th. And can you conceive or have you considered a world 50 years from now that might look back at this time and shake their heads at the Liberals and say, ah, oh, they just gummed everything up for a while with their silly ideas about everyone getting on and looking after each other. And they may have had good intentions, but actually that's not the way human beings are supposed to be. And they ended up doing more harm than good. I don't think it'll be read that way, actually. I think it'll be read as, as a moment of the virtual world erupting into the real world, that it was an internet election. Do you think it was all about life online in some way? Historically, if you pull back, I think the macro view, if, you're, if I had to guess in 50 years, will be 
we invented this thing which was all-consuming and then our real world started to tumble inside it and was for a while warped by our inability to separate the two things. I imagine that's what's going to go on. So this is a symptom of growing pains? I think it's partly growing pains. Also... Uh, platforms like and the left is just as guilty of it like I keep on hearing people going on about fake right-wing news but I read this piece in the Guardian our, our lovely left-wing paper yesterday which was about the idea that um, Nazis were very disappointed uh, by what was happening with Trump right now and you read it it looks like a news article there's a picture of a Nazi he's got cold steel blue eyes and it all seems serious it's in the Guardian then you Look at it again, you realise that the actual article is about six to ten people on Reddit having a conversation. Now, that is not news. It's not news of any kind. It's not international news. It's not even local news. It's barely news on Reddit. But it's on the screen in The Guardian, read by millions of people all around the world, and taken as news. And it starts to play into the actual real-life situation, and that is kind of wild. Are you on social media yourself then? You obviously look at it. I am not. Uh, I'm not. I can't look at it on my laptops. It's, um, I went through quite an elaborate procedure to, in order to block it, which is sometimes annoying. Like, for instance, my dog. My dog was photographed in the East Village yesterday and put on something called Doggist yeah. and got like 80,000 hits, apparently. Was he papped or, or pupped? She became like, a, apparently, according to my friends in New York, quite famous for a day, but I don't have any ability to appreciate that. I'm yeah. sure I'll... When I get back, she'll be full of it. She's not getting any uh, dog hassle. Um, <laughs> She's an old lady. So dog she, trolls. She should be chuffed with whatever she gets at right. this point. Have you ever got in a big bust up online? No, because I can't. I don't have any means. I don't have the phone, oh, the okay, apps, right. and so or anything. Why, why did you get rid of it? Were you spending too much time looking at it at a certain point? I, I never had the... F- I only had the phone for a few months very early on, like 2008, and I just didn't really like it. You've literally got no phone. I mean, I've got a flip. I mean, I can phone you. Yeah, yeah. And I can text you. Don't try and send me a smiley face because I won't be able to see it. But you haven't got a big (laughs) mini TV in your pocket. Uh, No, no, I haven't. No. I just haven't got time. That's literally how I feel about it. I just don't, I don't see how. And I've got a laptop. It's not like I'm living in a hole. I see everything. I just don't want to see it all the time in my pocket. You're very uptight about time. I'm very uptight about time. I just, yeah, I don't think there's enough of it to, to be on Facebook for like three and a half hours. I can't, I just don't, can't be bothered. Is that a factor of you feeling that time is speeding up crazily as you enter your 40s? But I always felt that. I mean, I, even as a kid, I felt like there was not going to be enough time to do anything. I, other people have a completely different feeling about time. They just seem really relaxed about it. And they say things to you like, 50's a new 40. You heard that one? That's fun. Mm-hmm. Or even 60. Yeah. They have like an infinite sense of their extension in the world. But I just always felt like you blink and it's gone. And I have some independent evidence. Like I remember asking my father when he was dying how it felt. And he said, yesterday I was 16, as far as I'm concerned. And I was like, oh God, yeah. I can believe it. Do you ever project yourself to that moment somewhere around the end of your life and you can feel that sense of what your father was talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing that for a long time. And, but I also, I think my friends would say that I, uh, I spend quite a lot of time worrying about things which are not even here yet. And you've always been like that? Yeah, I think I've always been like that. My brothers would say the same. And my dad was like that. Like if we turned up in Felixstowe at three o'clock to come and see him, he'd, he'd be already looking at the train timetable to check the train we had to go home on and spend the entire time stressing about when we were going back to London. Yeah, I don't know what that is. 
He was also very uptight about time. He was very uptight about time, yeah. Yeah. And it rubbed off on you. It must have, yeah. And you, did that then sort of create a heaviness in you? I mean, I, I see a lot of you in the protagonist in Swing Time. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I do. And like compared to my brothers, but I think they're all a bit melancholy, actually. Ben's a bit like that, too. And yes. my littlest brother certainly is. But, uh, you know, with right, light relief, like we all like to laugh a lot. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and we all like a kind of comic, comic relief, yeah. But do you sure. think of yourself as someone who's kind of sad? <laughs> Am I sad? I don't. I think I'm. I'm more realistic about limits than sometimes a lot of people seem to be these days. Yeah, yeah. I just don't feel like life is this kind of unlimited, infinite thing. Mm-hmm. I just don't see that. I don't think it has to be a tragic knowledge. It's just. It's just kind of good to know that you ha- that it's a finite affair. Hey, here's a phrase you might find useful: carpe diem. Oh God. <laughs> what about that? I just... Wouldn't it be amazing if you had a teacher who, who told you to stand on your desk and say it? Imagine that teacher. I remember that film. It's on Broadway right now with Jason Tudakis, yeah. Oh, my God. I don't think it's doing very well. I don't think people are really in the mood for standing on your desk. And, yeah. No. <laughs> and shouting It's the wrong yeah. moment. Right. Captain, oh, my Captain. Yeah. Trump. Yeah, God. How do you look back at yourself when you were when you were young? You've got some good little details in in the Swing Time book about um, the various phases that your character goes through, which include being a goth at one point. Was that ever your <laughs> path? Were you actually down the Camden Palais? And no, I have to say I, I might have stolen a bit of that from Ben more than from me. Ben Ben was a my brother was a huge leveler fan, which made me laugh a lot at the time. He's going to kill me. He cried when Kurt Cobain died. All of that. And then he suddenly discovered hip-hop. And then that was that. And he disappeared into hip-hop. So I I was never a goth. But I I loved Camden. But I was not really in the goth scene. I was certainly in the sitting around smoking weed scene. But then I was the entirety of North London. That was what we did then. Um, Have you drawn a line under the whole world of getting stoned? I just can't. I hate the fog in your brain. I'm so impatient with it. I don't like it anymore i love getting drunk that didn't finish mm. that's the last pleasure left to the middle-aged person were you getting up first thing in the morning and skinning up i was never in college maybe a bit but i was never a waker and baker really it was a t- for me it was a time issue like if you grew up in our neighborhood you always knew that person who'd been making an album right for 15 years yeah <laughs> or who was gonna do something you know go and join football club but never because it was always going to happen and i started thinking that weed was really the behind it all just this delay in your brain you think something's happening and then actually 10 years have gone by what was your favorite thing to do when you were baked then would you listen to a lot of music yeah it was always music but i always prefer we used to smoke hash which tiny little smelly cubes of hash that you paid five pounds for and you had to get that five pounds by having a whip round in the school and begging people and then agreeing to give them back a bit of this tiny cube it's like an investment program so you could only get a little bit stoned in the first place, but we used to smoke it and um, and just listen to a lot of music. Then listen to some boy from one of the posh schools play "Wonderful Tonight" on a guitar. Not uh, where do you go to? Oh God, I, stop! <laughs> Sarsted. <laughs> He's wheeling out the Sarsted. <laughs> and what were you listening to back in those days? I think I don't. Ben would probably argue with me, but I think I started the hip-hop thing in our house because I loved De La Soul and Arrested Development and Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick 
and Moni Love. So I had those early tapes. But then Ben certainly, and Luke, of course, my littlest brother, went on and became experts beyond experts. I liked a lot of, you know, what you call emo stuff now, like Tori Amos. A lot of crying to Tori Amos. Right. And early Radiohead and... Maybe there was even a Lenny Kravitz summer. That's a depressing idea. Mate. And also pop music. I just loved pop music. I loved Top of the Pops. I loved those stupid records where they had the countdown on them. Yeah. I loved all, all pop. But you liked kind of jazz and stuff when you were growing up. Yeah, and I, I liked a lot of sh- uh, like 30s, 40s show tunes. It was, it was a large part to do with my parents' record collection. There was a lot of um, Dylan and both all my family are massive Dylan fans. And a lot of the Beatles. And also, you remember in those days when, with your parents' records, there was a kind of chronological... You could learn something, you know. Things were in order, more or less, and you knew that they, this was from the 30s, 40s. This was the rock and roll they kept on banging on about like it was the beginning and end of all human life. And then your little records from our price, you added, and they'd say, that sounds just like the Kinks, or that, and you'd say, shut up! It's my music! But it was like that. And you kind of find things out in time, like when you found out that John Lennon had been killed. It was usually at the end of listening to all those albums. And, and you would, I, for me anyway, I experienced it like it had just happened. I was so sad about it. Yeah, yeah. I bought that film, Imagine, you remember that documentary? Sure. And cried a lot. And, but it, I mean, it had happened when I was five years old, but you kind of experienced it as your history somehow. That's the film that has him and Yoko at the big white piano, right? Yeah. And also, I think, in that film is a scene where... This crusty... Um, yeah, it comes to his door. It's an amazing scene because beautiful. You, you couldn't conceive of it happening nowadays. No. It probably wouldn't be able to happen because there'd be so much security. security. Gates. Yeah, he comes to the front door of his enormous house and Yoko's standing by him. And it's a very beautiful hippie tramp. He looks like yeah. Jesus. I mean, he's really good looking, blonde. And he wants to know something about a line in one of the songs, like a yeah. single line. Oh, oh you're going to carry that weight a long time. Yeah. And John really tries to, like, listen to him. He's a bit impatient, but he just says, you know, I just, I write about whatever happens today. Like, he said, I think he says, I took a good shit today, or I had a coffee, or I love my wife, or, but it's about my life, and whatever it means to you is fine, but there's no secret message. You weren't thinking of anyone in particular when you were singing all of it. How could I be? How could I be thinking of you, man? Well, I don't know, maybe, I don't care me, but it's all, it's all somebody. You know? I'm thinking about me, or at best, Yoko, if it's a love song. I'm saying, you know, I had a good shit today and uh, this is what I thought this morning and, uh, you know, and, or oh, I love you, Yoko, whatever. I'm singing about me and my life, you know, and if it's relevant for other people's lives, that's all right. For me, that film, I watched it over and over and I, um, I just found Lennon to be such an extraordinary person, <laughs> like a kind of hero. And then at the end where he gives it all up and goes to raise children and bread yeah. for five years. The bread-making years. Yeah, I was very moved by the whole conception of that kind of artist. Did you read enough about him to find out all the bad things as well? And then how did you find it? I haven't thought about this in years. That's so funny. Yes, I did. I read the Philip French and I I was really kind of obsessed with him for a while. I, the bad things are he had a bad temper and he, he drank those his, white Russians and be mean. Some of his um, more extreme political allegiances seem kind of... Well, reckless. he's foolish. He was, he was yeah. always an enthusiast, so... Whatever oppressed group came near him, he would always take them on full throttle and, and be happy to support them in any way. But it's better to be enthusiastic than cynical. That was what was so wonderful about him. I heard a news story about him recently on the radio in America, which I'd never heard before. It was uh, somebody giving a personal account of it. They were meant to play some big show 
in the south, mm-hmm. huge stadium. And when they got there, George noticed that the seating was segregated. Like there were signs saying white people here, black people here. And John said, we are not playing this show unless you change that. And it became this huge incident. Like the mayor came and said, we can't change it. That's the law. And and John just said, well, look, then we're not playing. And it was, you know, 25,000 people and there was only two hours to go. I tried to think of any contemporary artist who would have the balls to do such a thing now. All the money wasted, all the time, everybody screaming at you, all the politics. And they just held their ground. And in the end, it was unsegregated. Everybody was allowed to pour into the stadium as one. And it set a precedent for other venues as well. His kind of heroism is is in many, many different elements. Um, But he was really a big deal for me when I was a kid. Mm. Yeah, he was unafraid of being very honest in a way that few people are these days. And now people try on what seems to be honesty as a bit of a pose, but it's usually an effort to push a few buttons and you you feel like this is not the whole story. No, he was honest and and it was often self-wounding. Like people ridiculed him so much, particularly the British press. They just couldn't get on with him, you know, the idea of this loudmouth Liverpudlian always said what he felt and never did what they wanted him to do, like marry a nice girl or... Yeah, the rage that people still have... (laughs) The horrible things that people say about Yoko online and things like that. That's incredible. It's so weird. Yeah, I know. Just think, listen to yourself. He was so happy with her. Uh, It's quite painful to think how happy they would have continued to have been. She's such a legend in New York, you know. She's she's a really awesome person. in general do you get struck by incidents of rudeness i think rudeness is just a a lack of imagination in a lot of people is new york a rude place did that take some getting used to i don't think they are that rude i mean they're impatient you just have to keep moving if you stop and dawdle you will hear behind you (gasps) really (laughs) really (laughs) you're like i've just just give me a second but i know i can be rude like i when i'm in middle of working or writing i just don't want to really deal with anything else you know I don't want to think about anything else the, the main problem I think is sometimes the school mum thing you know like like a lot of working women I drop my kids I run back to my desk you know um, but I, I, I think I'm okay socializing aspect of it with being thrust together with all so many different people that you might not otherwise want to speak to or? right but I, I assume that they all everybody's feeling that way I think even the chipper mum who's like doing it all the time it's not like it's a great pleasure for her to talk to you either, I think. I think everybody's under a kind of strain, so a certain amount of politeness is necessary. And there are all kinds of weird dynamics. Like you might find that you really uh, love some mum, and the bad news is, is that her child is a shit. Yeah. And it's the wrong way around. Are you, are you the kind of person that feels okay with telling off someone else's children? I do do, I do, do that sometimes. I know I should, probably shouldn't... Um, I, I do do that sometimes. Um, yeah, but I don't. I don't mind people. You know to, how scary it was when someone else. I know it's terrifying. You want to cry. Off. Your eyes fill with water. Oh Jesus! I'm the worst. I would never shout, <laughs> but um, the worst thing is that sometimes you have the instinct to be mean to. I think that's so horrifying to recognize it in yourself right. when you meet a particularly bad child and 
who's like boorish or selfish or boastful. Like sometimes if I'm with a really boastful six-year-old and they'll tell me all the things they they own, and then I'll just say, oh well, I don't, I don't really like those. <laughs> it's just terrible. <laughs> and you realise you're bitching with a six-year-old, yeah. but some of them do deserve it. They That's just arm wrestle. they need to be taken down a bit. That's right. So boastful. Do you know uh, kung fu? <laughs> I know some kung fu. I'll try it out on you, see if you like it. Oh my god. I also love comedy that does that. Like, Will Ferrell is a specialist in, like, being offensive to children. Yeah, that's that's yeah. such a great comic line. Like, when, when Will Ferrell and a three year old are, like, having it out. Sandler used to be good at that, too. Uh-huh. It's a special skill. Do you um, socialise with a lot of comedians in New York? I don't, actually. Like, I, Do I love. Yeah, I go and see it all the time because I live next to the cellar. So I can just. Right. If I've done my work, I can sneak down and. Go to the 11 o'clock show. So this is the famous comedy cellar that is at the beginning of the titles of Louis C.K.'s... Right. Never have I seen Louis there. How long have I been going hoping that Louis would accidentally turn up one day? It never happened. But I saw Amy Schumer before she was uh, known at all, before she had a TV show or anything. So I I see people and I love to see them. Part of it's because you live in Washington Square. Everybody's always filming in the same three blocks that I live in. To the point that my children are so impatient and angry with film crews. Like at one point, Ghostbusters was trying to stop us getting to school. And my daughter was like, I just don't, I don't care if you're filming Ghostbusters. I'm going to school. And then the AD's begging with you, please don't, please don't walk across the square. It's a reboot, man. Yeah, I'm going to school. Get out of my way. I love comics. Sometimes I go and see SNL and I, so I, I've seen Louis there do his stuff. But I see them from a distance, you know, as a fan. I, I love comedy. Um, but because my brother's a comic, I am aware that sometimes comedians themselves are a bit of a melancholy lot. Sad clowns? They're sad clowns. Oh. No, they're either drinking clowns or sad clowns. So <laughs> I, I think it's nicer just to watch them do their thing and then go home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I saw a photograph of you with some other literary lions. It was a big uh, literary lion pack. Oh, yeah. You... Jonathan Franson. Oh, God, that was such a long David time ago. David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a f- festival in Italy. Right. And Nathan Englander and Jeff Eugenides. Um, that was, obviously it was before David died. It must have been 2006 or something. Uh-huh. Um, I had been living in Italy, so I knew the festival and the festival organisers. I'm sure that's why I was invited. And I was the only girl... I remember the main thing being how funny it was to see these literary lions in their like underpants in a swimming pool. I remember finding that was a very funny thing. At one point, they were all playing uh, some kind of American game that you play in a pool, like Marco Polo or something. I thought, this is something to see. It's like Jonathan Franzen in, in a pool. <laughs> it was a funny thing. No, we were there about a week, I think. So we'd see each other every day and... Um, so there was hobbing and nobbing? There was hobbing and nobbing. I'd met everybody before, but never spent such concerted time with them, I guess. Maybe it was the first time I'd met Jeff Eugendis. Um, did you already know David Foster Wallace? I did know David from, from writing to him as a fan, as a kid, and then he'd written back, and then I'd met him a few times in New York at the New Yorker Festival. But it was the first time I'd spent any time with him. Um, was I, he, he different to the person you expected him to be? Uh, n- not really. He, he, I expected him to be an extremely polite and self-conscious Midwestern boy, and that's how he was. Sometimes it would slow things up, like you try and have lunch, and David would be so preoccupied with the waiter, you know, that if the waiter was happy or if we were being obnoxious to the waiter, or you can imagine these kind of spirals of that it would be quite hard to order food and get on with your day. 
He was also very attached to dogs. I remember going to a, a, one event one evening and he spent the whole time communing with like a Labrador in the corner of the party. <laughs> so it was those kind of things. What was the book that uh, made you a fan of David Foster Wallace? Um, was it his articles? I think, I can't think of the first one I read. It might have been Broom of the System. I read it very early and ha read Infinite Jest in college. Um, Did you read the whole thing? I did. It was such a labour. And it's not in any way my favourite book of his. Yeah. What but is? I really like the essays. It's a supposedly fun thing. But the one I teach every year is Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, which, because I know it so well, I think is probably my favourite. I think it's a really brilliant collection. Yeah. Yeah. Is there um, something in there that stands out for you? Um, I think all the stories in there are pretty extraordinary. There's one called... Uh, Church Made With No Hands, which is a very weird Joycean story towards the end, which I always find very beautiful. Uh -huh. yeah. Did you see that film with um, about his speaking tour? No, yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I No. I mean, the guy who wrote that is my colleague at NYU. I just feel that anyone who had even a passing knowledge of David, not even personally, but who reads him, would know how absolutely... Uh, mortified he would have been yeah. by these projects so I just don't really get it I don't I don't watch any of them but it was interesting because that was my introduction to the whole oh really world of, of him and his books so it's quite good it served quite a useful purpose well that's a good thing yeah I guess if people don't know him and want to know about his writing because he totally passed me by and I realized that I'd made it a, a, a completely facile superficial judgment about him because of his bandana the bandana was quite annoying I remember reading with him in New York and it would fill with sweat and then he'd take it off and put another one on. Yeah. I'd seen pictures of him and I just sort of wrote him off as like <laughs> a kind of tedious... Uh, he looked like a different person. He looked like a kind of gung-ho, you know, yeah. uh, rock and roll... Like, oh, hey, no, 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 yeah, not at all. And yeah. instead it's this super sensitive, super thoughtful right. guy. Yeah, very he sensitive. seems to have a skin too few. And right, exactly that. Such a, It's funny because when I used to teach him... When he was alive, I would come up against exactly that, you know, with students, this kind of uh, pushback or they were annoyed, particularly because he was their generation or they felt he was a young writer and they were annoyed. And now when I teach him, the opposite happens and it's almost as irritating. You know, I walk in and everybody's... Fawning. Yeah, they're like in the Church of David and nothing can be said that isn't, you know, as, as every line was, was perfect. I think he, it, that seems kind of silly as well. Yeah. And he wore the bandana purely as because he sweated so much. I think that was the main reason, yeah, to keep yeah. it out of his eyes. Right. Speaking of colleagues that, that you have who are creative, what's your policy on dealing with someone you are friends with or you, you know who makes something you don't think is very good? <laughs> How do you deal with that situation? Is it I think it's better to be supportive of a friend. Right. Should that be a blanket policy, or should you get into like, can I give you some constructive feedback? I, you know, I so rely on the honest opinions of my friends that I, that I, when we were younger, certainly, I, I think everybody was a bit more flexible in terms of critique. As you get older, I think people do batten down the hatches. There's a kind of form of self-protection, but there's so much delusion. Like sometimes I'll perhaps send a very supportive... The answer is I would always send a nice email. I won't send a nasty email. So I'd send a very nice email about somebody's book that perhaps I didn't love. But then, of course, when I get a really nice email from another colleague, it doesn't occur to me that they also hate my book and have just <laughs> written me a perfectly charming email about it. 
So it's that, like, it makes me a bit sad not ever knowing what people really feel. But yes, I'd rather have that than, than the email saying, after you've published it, nice book, it had this, that, and the other problem. Do you think you really don't know how other people feel? Are you not able no, to... No, because I've written them? such convincing emails about books that I completely hate. So you I'm know, imagining that other people do the same. You have a sense, though, fundamentally, that those people probably like you and like what you do. Um, no, I, I don't think that's true of writers. I have plenty of writers' fr friends who we completely respect each other and I, I love to talk to them as writers, but what we do is uh, non-compatible. I'm sure they don't like what I write and I often don't like what they write, but that's not really an issue. Mm -hmm. it's, it, writing is a kind of broad church and I can recognise someone to be absolutely a writer, a genuine writer, without them being my kind of writer. Mm -hmm. Then being your kind of writer is like an added extra, like with a friend like Jeffrey Gendes, for example, it's just incredibly good luck that I both like him, he's a good friend, and his writing is up my street. But that's not that common, I think, between writers. Do you find that people recommend other writers to you because your styles are superficially similar and actually it's not your taste at all? Yeah, I, don't, I really don't want to read writers like me most of the time. That is, I find that really exhausting. And the publishers who make that error... I remember when I wrote White Teeth, the amount of books sent to me about, you know... Bengali families living in London, for example, I was like, dude, I, I already read, I wrote that. I don't want to read any more books about that. I'm good right now. I'm interested in other things. Um, I love to read things which suggest a completely different direction. Like one I probably couldn't take, but that I'm curious about. Yeah. Um, and you sort of referred briefly there to the frustration of not knowing what is really going on with people a lot of the time. Yeah. And there's a line that bookends swing time, which is something like, now we can see who you really are, or right. now we know who you really are. Is that a preoccupation of yours, then, that you have to manage how people perceive you, or, or that it's just a necessary part of being a modern person, and actually, not until you're dead will people get a clearer idea of what really makes you tick. Right. I think deadness ha helps. But I don't think it's a modern condition. I think people are really, have always been, uh, have an incredible capacity for self-delusion. I just think that's how people are. You think that people are deluding themselves rather than deliberately selling an image of themselves to other people? It's, it's, it's a bit of both. But, I, you know, when people are, sometimes people are uncovered, right, in the British press for their sex scandals or he's married to a woman, but in fact he's this and that, as if it were a deliberate ploy. And of course, sometimes it is, but I also think it is possible for people to genuinely separate two parts of their brains and live in two completely different ways. And the horror is when, when somebody unites them in this vulgar way and says, oh, did you know that X, Y, and Z is actually like this? I think for a lot of people, I mean, I can't imagine such a thing happen. It must be so traumatic, particularly the way it's done in England. But I, I think people can live their lives with the part of themselves hidden even from themselves. When you say it's so, so traumatic the way it's done, what are you referring to? There? I think like someone like Keith Vaz recently, for example, yeah. like it just, it's really kind of obscene. And I don't know why we haven't got out of the habit those, of, of enjoying those episodes. don't know about Keith Vaz, what was that story? Well, he is a uh, MP married who turned out to be seeing, I guess, rent boys in the language of the Sundays. And I remember all those scandals from our childhood, right? Like you'd go out and buy News of the World because somebody's life had just been destroyed and it seemed like something you could read while you were eating your egg and chips. Just knowing people over the years and how often they are surprised by themselves and how much they hide um, from their children, their partners, their friends. I don't think that tone of like 
crowing is a very civil one. That's a big part of swing time as well, of course, is that, yeah. is that whole world of trading those kinds of secrets and, uh, and the damage that it can do. Right. Have you had friends that that's happened to? And um, no, I haven't. I mean, I was just hearing actually in New York about someone who had said something, on, someone on the left who had said something unpleasant about Trump online and within a day these kind of alt-right internet goons have put all her email online. So that stuff's going to happen more and more often because uh, the trolls are not just trolls, they're like really competent at uh, busting open people's intimate lives. I mean, that is my feeling is that no one could survive the opening of their email online. No one. The kind of jokes I don't, we make on email, I don't know about you, but I mean, email for me is like a place of id. It's where I say everything that you can't say in public social life. The point is that intimate life and private life is real and should exist. The idea that your dog, for instance, might be a racist Nazi, I think many people have these imaginary racist dogs in their lives, or cats or hamsters, the kind of jokes you make within your family, that, that's your right as a human to have that intimate space in which things are not pretty. So I kind of fear a world where everybody's like serially exposing each other because when it comes to your turn, it's not going to look nice. Nobody has this pristine interior life. I do. You do, really? Yeah. I can really tell that great. from looking at you. You're great all round. I'm just a great so, guy. I'm so terrific. <laughs> I, sometimes I wish I could publish my emails. Just then people to show. Would have a clearer picture. Of from how the grandeur. Because obviously they think I'm great, but they don't know. They don't know the half of it. I like about you when you're talking about your stuff is that you do look back and not worry exactly but you, you revise your opinion about yourself as a younger person fairly regularly but you're not certain about things I'm fed up with people who are certain about everything there's a lot of certainty going around yeah. these days and I heard you saying that, that the older you get the less sure you are about right. a lot of things I mean, it's true and it's not, isn't it? Because we're told the older generation was responsible for Brexit, for example. Right. So there are a lot of people, certainly my parents' generation, whose opinions solidified in a certain way and who seemed less open-minded the older they got. Yeah. And for them, it was about looking back a lot. It was about saying things actually were better in the old days and we've thrown out a lot right. of what was good then. And we should get back to those times. Well, the thing about, I, mean, I was talking about it recently and thinking about it, that everybody has that conservative instinct as they get older and, and nostalgia. But for some of us, that nostalgia would be self-harm. Like, it's not really a good idea for a young black woman to think about going back to, I don't know, America in 1942. That's not going to be a good deal for me. And so the problem with the kind of nostalgia you're talking about in your parents' case is that it's only really accessible to some people. And it, it leaves a lot of other people out, like uh, in England, you'd be leaving out, depending on how far back you went, women voting, children going up <laughs> chimneys. I mean, the past always looks pretty from a certain view. And I know England has a lot of nostalgia for Victorian 
life and, and for um, Edwardian life, um, going on the basis of the TV shows we've been presented with recently. And I also have all that nostalgia for various moments of British life, but also hopefully a, a kind of historical view of mm. what was and was not possible for Those many people other people. would say, of course, that the nostalgia is for the good parts, is for people um, treating each other with respect, for there being some sort of um, but that's only half that of the story enabled it? people to feel comfortable with their lot and all that sort right. of stuff. You know what I mean? Like everyone knew their position, and um, and that made for a, a happier life, relatively free from the anxieties <laughs> right. of the modern individualistic age. Yeah, where everyone feels yeah. It's their right to have everything. Uh, and my grandmother worked in one of those big houses. It's it's not. Um, Everyone knowing their place is an interesting idea. Also, that some of that great wealth and comfort was, of course, on the back of an incredibly brutal colonial uh, experiment. So that's the difficult thing. It's, like it's boring, perhaps, to be dragged over the past and, and to understand what it was rested on, what it was based on. But, but it's also a kind of escapism to pretend it wasn't. I, I do think there are, are values of the past that that can be useful to us, but, but those things should be values of the present anyway. You have to find some way to reimagine the things you want without disappearing into this historical nostalgia mm -hmm. in which many people's uh, rights and freedoms get lost again. Is your ma still with us? She, my God, is she still with us? Yes, she is. She's yeah. very, very young. She's only like 62 or three. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's um, got a lot of energy. And do you get on okay? Yeah, we do. There's some heavy mum stuff in uh, swing time. There is. We've had our moments, but then I have my moments with my daughter. And in our family, there's a long history of mothers and daughters in tension. But the more my friends I spoke to about their mothers, there were very few who didn't have some kind of complicated relation. It's just such a difficult relationship. It really is. Yeah. What is it? I don't know. The, the feeling of, of being replaced, the feeling of trying to reenact something. I think women are... I find myself harder on my daughter because women have this sense of, of themselves as competent. Well, I could do this. And they project it onto the daughter. Whereas the son, you just think, hello, you little helpless idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what can I do for you? Yeah, you're good, right? And that's how the patriarchy is made, yeah. basically, unfortunately. Um, women are very soft on their sons, aren't they? And then I, I remember thinking my mother was very soft on, on my brothers. Um, and you can, like, she was so proud of how handsome they were and how tall they were and, and all their girlfriends. And I think that's a kind of natural relation. Whereas when a woman thinks of her daughter, there's so much more anxiety about everything. Mm -hmm. Nothing is without anxiety. How she dresses, who she goes out with, how long she stays out. Um, there's a kind of moral panic and a personal panic. Some of it rational, like girls are in physical danger a lot of the time. So I understand it. It's just much more complex. Like I get my son dressed without even thinking. It's like something I bought from Tesco's, put it on, go out of the house. But with the girl, it matters to me what she wears, you know. You've all these feminist mothers like me freaking out about all the pink or... And whatever you feel about it, the fact is you're still freaking out about it. Whereas the boy is just like, put that dinosaur t-shirt on, get out of the house. There's certainly a huge <laughs> weight of expectation and cultural baggage yeah. that applies to a girl in a way that it doesn't to a boy. Right. Still, you know, but it is weird. Like, do you find, I found with my daughter that at every point felt as if I was laying out as many options for her as it was possible to do. But still, for whatever reason, she was gravitating towards what you would consider to be traditional right. things that girls... Um, my daughter's the same. 
I am a strong feminist, but that aspect of it basically is patriarchal, which denigrates women's instinctive interests and pursuits. I think it's really depressing. I do it with my daughter because it was done to me and I, I find it hard to avoid. But when I'm saying to her, don't watch that show, don't, what am I really saying? That shows full of girls are bad news, stupid, boring? You, what am I trying to imply to her? It's like a constant denigration of the things that interest her. Mm -hmm. Don't be interested in clothes, don't pick up that doll. I think you have to find a way to, to make the feminine not a humiliating place to be. ball bags I thought of a thing I wanted to ask you about has oh, your brain started to fail you it's just unbelievable is it yeah oh, I'm glad I put a hairbrush in the fridge a few days ago <laughs> who knows why come on that's probably nice and relaxing for your scalp <laughs> a lovely cool <laughs> hairbrush what are some of the great great things about getting older <laughs> that you love oh my god be up tempo about getting older it's more like an absence of other things. Like I was at a party recently in Germany and there were a lot of young people suddenly came into the party. And the way they talked to me, like like as if they were on Twitter, like they would say these really funny short things and their faces were very animated and they were like making kind of performance. And then quite soon afterwards they would leave the party as if they had the sense that if I'm not funny, really funny five minutes, then I, I must go. I can't just stand and say, so what's been going on with you today? How's work? And I thought, God, that looks like hard work, that whole, <laughs> that whole being young thing. And I felt a great enjoyment just being at the party, meeting random people, drinking, not caring what people thought about you, like just really wanting to eat the food and drink the drink until everybody else was gone, then go home. I realised when you're in your 20s, that's not really what's going on at a party. There's so much social anxiety. Yeah. I really, really don't care anymore. You don't miss those days. I don't, I don't miss that feeling like, oh, what did everybody think of me at the party? <laughs> like that. Old people don't think that. They think, is there some food? Is yeah. the drink free? <laughs> yes? Good. I'll be there. So, yeah, just being more relaxed. Yeah, there, there's a sense of comfort in yourself. I also personally think, it's maybe not a popular opinion, that young people don't really know how to dress. Oh, flipping egg tucker. I know. Set the cat among the pigeons. Because I remember not knowing, like you just don't really understand your own body, what looks good in it. You read a magazine and it says, let's all wear yellow feathers and you put yellow feathers on, you look fucking ridiculous. How did you learn how to dress? I've never learned. Well, the men, the, the men, the British men of the 90s, they got an idea, didn't they, around 1996, and they were like, I'm sticking with this idea. I'm going to wear cargo pants in the summer. <laughs> they, they, got, they had their concept. They might wear a T-shirt with the shirt undone, like... And they just stuck with it. And that's okay. Like I saw Liam Gallagher in Sainsbury's about two years ago and he was just still dressed like he was in 1998. Well, and I was like, it, man. Yeah, he was having it in Sainsbury's. Yeah. I was like, all right. I quite admired the consistency. It's like Einstein with all those same suits. Like, why, why mess it up? Absolutely. Yeah, but he had the, eye, the glass, you know, the sunglasses on his head and everything was exactly the same. Anything else gets in the way of what's important. Right, he's I'm got... I'm shocked at how superficial you are. <laughs> he's got things to have. He's having it. He hasn't got time to think oh, about God, a new right. wardrobe. Have you seen... There's a, a documentary about Oasis called Supersonic. Oh, no, I really want to. Like, I used to hate them so much in the so 90s because it was a war and 
But now the war's over and we're all old and pathetic and so I can feel sentimental about the whole thing. I'm going to watch it. And it is really quite a a blast of all kinds because I I, I really couldn't give a shit about them. I hated them so much. I just thought they are the enemy. The worst, they were the enemy. And that music Those is droning boring. songs. And it's, God. What did I think it was like? Oh, yeah, I just thought this is like status quo, just right. with slightly different production. And in a way, I was right. But <laughs> You were but, Team Damon yeah, but, back in the I day. I was sort of Team Damon. Maybe you were Team Brit. I didn't like Country House. I was Team no. Jarvis. Oh, yeah, Jarvis. Well, Jarvis still. I mean, he's king. That was the right decision. Yeah. But... Actually, watching the documentary is terrific, and you are reminded of what a what a force of nature they were. And that's the thing. And they were hilarious, and they came down and to London, and they had it. They bought massive houses in Hampstead, and they were they, they were always they wanted, funny. And they didn't care. They genuinely didn't seem to give a shit. No, which was funny. And they, and I quite imagine Noel, uh, admire Noel's commitment to his art. Like he had a thing he wanted to do, and he just did it undeflected by anybody's opinion, certainly by fashion. And he had that sideline in absolutely hilarious interviews, which is one of the great treasures of the 90s, just reading over the things he had to say about everybody. I mean, it really is a snapshot of a different world. It was a different world, yeah. Just on the cusp of the internet, all still tabloid-driven. Yes. And just these guys who were like the the last gunslingers. Yeah. It was um, really But the music funny. is great, though, actually. It totally passed me by, but of course people got into it. It's yeah. brilliant, some of it. There were just some boys in our college who had the control of the jukebox and they just wouldn't let it go. It was just that all day long. And yeah. It began to drive you mental. Mm. But, yeah, fair play to them. Yeah. The 90s. The 90s. The 90s. The Yardankities. I never understood. You remember that joke in... in um, Brass Eye. He's talking about drugs. <laughs> Why has the 90s turned into the yard dankities? And I always thought, what does that mean? Really and, uh, and then I realised that it was like, no, he's saying... Yardies? Is that what he means? No, no, it's like, instead of saying nine, as in no, yeah. everyone's saying yard danker. <laughs> oh my God, that's terrible. <laughs> and having lots of drugs. Oh. I literally only got the joke like about two oh, years that's ago. That's brilliant. <laughs> God, brass eye, that was a great thing about the yeah, 90s. Amazing. What all, okay, this is the final question. Yeah, of course. What always lifts your spirits? <laughs> For me, it's probably hip hop. Like, hip hop, I, it just makes me happy. If I'm exercising, it makes me exercise. If it's old 90s hip hop, it fills me with like warm feelings and nostalgia. And uh, yeah, that, that is quite a reliable source of pleasure for me. What's the modern hip hop that you like? Uh, I, big, I really like Kendrick, but I also um, like my brother's despair of me because I'm, I'm very much a sucker for, for beats. So sometimes people like Bobby Schmurder, which would make my little brother, he's a very conscious rapper, uh, like he's just so disgusted, but I can't resist a, a tune. Bobby Schmurder is now unfortunately in jail for Schmurder. <laughs> <laughs> he's got eight years, he's only 20 or something. Come on, man. Terrible. Um, or there's a song, a huge hit at the moment called Panda. Really yeah, it's called Bobby Schmurder. Yeah. I'm sure it's not his real name. Um, there's a song called Panda. The chorus goes Panda, 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 which is literally about two different kinds of car. And when you have both of them together, they look like a panda. Um, but the song is irresistible. Yeah. But my brothers frown on this kind of party hip hop. Party hip hop. Yeah. I like party hip hop. Yeah, me too. What about Frank Ocean? 
I love Frank Ocean. I feel for him. I think it's so hard to be famous in that way and to have such a delicate and interesting talent. Um, but at the same time, I hope he, f he finds a way back to his natural abilities, which are very large. I hope he doesn't spend too much time agonizing. Same. But we've, we've seen this before. He's young. He doesn't, maybe doesn't know. But we, as old grizzled people, have seen this process before. And so I'm sure he will return to us in new form. As long as he doesn't start murdering people. He's got to not murder, but he doesn't seem the murdering type to me. <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. So there you go, Zadie Smith. I'm very grateful indeed to Zadie for making the time to talk to me for the podcast. And um, I do recommend Swing Time, even though, you know, the whole appearance on the podcast was not a promotional opportunity for her. She was just up for coming along and chatting, which is good. Because, you know, the podcast is seldom an effective promotional tool I'm an effective promotional tool, but not the podcast. Just because um, I, I never know when the interviews are going to go out. Like some are easy to edit and they go out fairly quickly and it seems like the right time to put them out. Other ones, they take a little bit longer and they need to, they sort of sit around for a while, <laughs> maturing. So it's all a bit arbitrary. Anyway, Rosie. Where are you? Oh, there you are. Rosie, come over here. What have you found? Don't antagonise creatures. I got a tweet from someone, today in fact, saying, uh, oh, I'm a bit worried that you think it's funny to let Rosie attack wild animals. Not cool. Well, first of all, Rosie very seldom comes into physical contact with anything she chases, do you, Rosie? They tend to get away from you immediately. I think years ago she duffed in a squirrel quite badly and I told her off. I don't like to encourage Rosie being antagonistic towards her fellow animal buddies but at the same time there's very little I can do about it sometimes if she shoots off 
in a hairy bullet style. But certainly if, you know, I saw her bullying a vole or a larger creature in close proximity, I would step in and mediate, get them to sit down and talk about their problems and uh, be a sort of animal ACAS. Anyway, that's pretty much it for the podcast this week. Uh, But before I go, exciting news for you podcasts or quartermasters or however you identify. There is a new bit of podcast-related merchandise which is available to buy through my website, adam-buxton.co.uk. Just this week, we added a poster designed by a brilliant artist, illustrator, Luke Drozd. He has, I'm very glad to say, created a poster especially for the podcast. And it's a beautiful nature scene with a little figure representing me and one representing Rosie down at the bottom. And it says Ramble Chat on it. And we have signed, both myself and Luke, about 30 of those posters, I think. So snap them up while you can. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I've got to think of new ways of wrapping things up. So, uh, yeah. So, kind of like that, really. So, sort of like, you know, kind of a little bit like that. That's not the way. That's not the way I'm going to go with wrapping things up. Instead, I will say thank you very much to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support. Thank you also to Matt Lamont for his edit skills. And thank you to you for uh, being kind enough to download this podcast and to listen right the way through to the end. Please listen to the final song and follow the instructions therein. A lot of people say to me, what are the lyrics of the song, Buckles? Well, I have tweeted the lyrics to the song, on several occasions, and it would be easy to find them if you felt motivated, but it doesn't stop people asking. I can understand, your lives are busy and um, you don't have time. So let me tell you that the lyrics are like and subscribe, please like and subscribe, give me a little smile and a thumbs up, a nice little pat when my bum's up. That's about it, really. Till next time, we're together. Go carefully, tread lightly. I love you. Bye! Oh, I wish you wouldn't do that. Sorry, Rosie. Thank you.